the incomparable. Number 187, March 2014. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and we're uh, reconvening our book club, our ever-shifting membership of the book club. The only person who is always with me for the book club is Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. Sorry I couldn't make it today, Jason. (laughs) No! Is this the ghost of Scott McNulty? (laughs) It is. Who doesn't read books? I don't. Oh, that's a shame. Well, it was, thank you for dropping in to say you won't be here. His life model duplicate. That voice you heard is John Moltz, who has been a voice in our radio dramas, but hasn't been on because usually he's not available when we record. But he's here. And I can't read. And you can't. But you're, well, then choosing a book club episode to appear on was the worst choice you could possibly have made. <laughs> oh, is that what this is? Yeah. Yeah. Also here, he reads occasionally and occasionally appears on our book club, especially if it's about the end of the world. Mm. It's Lex Friedman. Hi, Lex. Hi. How are you? It's good to have you here. I'm doing fine. Better now that you're here. I'll be on any podcast that features John Moltz. <laughs> we should say you guys, you fellows, you fellows have a podcast of your own. That's correct. Turning this car around. It's about driving. <laughs> uh, it's about driving when you're a dad and how you're constantly threatening to turn the car around. All right. That's good. I like that. Is there an, is there an age where that starts? The minute the minute they can talk, I think. <laughs> the minute they have desire to go somewhere else. <laughs> and that voice you heard was Lisa Schmeiser, by the way. Hi, Lisa. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you. <laughs> they, they don't really understand what you're saying until after they get back from college. Yeah. Even if then, frankly, yeah. if then. 30, 32. Mm-hmm. All right, so we are all here to talk about... Um, a relatively new book, although it has a little bit of a history. It was a, a, mm. a posted on a website, um, chapter by chapter, and then um, the author did a Kindle edition, and that became uh, very successful. And uh, so then it got an audio edition and a movie deal and a book deal, and just recently came out as a uh, you know an officially published by a big publishing company book, which is, I feel bad, I, I should have my finger on the pulse of this stuff and have read it like two years ago and be able to scoff and say, bah, I read that one. But no, I, I just heard about it like a couple weeks ago. And it's called The Martian by a guy named Andy Weir, who is... Um, uh, has a computer science background. Is is uh you know has also liked to write. He's a sort of like a technology, uh, technology geek, um, and uh, amateur writer who has become now the author of this widely wi- widely published, wildly successful novel, The Martian. Yeah, and he may be fabulously wealthy now, but his name still sounds a little bit like underwear. So how about that? <laughs> yeah, sorry, Andy Weir. <laughs> it's a cross you have to bear. You should have chosen a pen name. <laughs> This is the pen name. Might I suggest... <laughs> Lex Friedman. <laughs> Might I suggest BVD Fruit of the Loom. <laughs> Just a suggestion. I love his work. He is Fruit of the Loom. Man, that guy could write. See, now you have me wondering if he actually made more money self-publishing than he would have made through a publishing house. Because the economics of getting published by a mainstream publisher are much, much different than when yeah, you do it yourself. But he was selling it for like 99 cents. And mm-hmm. um, and like I said, I'm like, I never heard of it. And then they... the, the To be fair, there's like a huge flood of self-published sci-fi out there. So unless you... Exactly. Unless you literally spend all day doing nothing but, but checking blog posts and reading through this stuff, you wouldn't have known. 
he did get a six-figure deal plus the movie deal. So I think he probably made the right decision overall, but you're right that it's not always a slam dunk on the economic question. Yeah. I think the movie's going to kick ass, frankly. I would hope so. I think so would be great. I, I So having enjoyed Gravity, I was sitting, you know, reading the book thinking, uh, well, I, I assume this has already been optioned for a movie because whoever mm-hmm. has got this can – I mean, the pitch is simple. It's like, you're looking for the next Gravity? I got it for you right here. I don't know why they have that accent. I think they're from New York. <laughs> Plus, Mission to Mars was so bad. Yeah, and, and Red uh, Planet. <laughs> Let's throw that in there, too. That was a dark Ooh. time in our nation's history. Yeah, because you guys have all seen Mission to Mars, right? Yep. Yes. Where Don Cheadle gets stranded on Mars. No, Don. So <laughs> I haven't seen it. There's a there's a long and stupid sequence of events involving Jerry O'Connell and Van Halen. Okay, long long story short, long and stupid sequence <laughs> of events that lead to Jerry O'Connell dancing around to, to Van Halen zero G, and then somehow Don Cheadle gets ended it ends up stranded on Mars and grows out a righteous afro in a greenhouse. Yeah, and that's pretty much what I remember from the movie. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much it. And so I, Andy Weir uh, was at the authors at Google. Uh, he gave a talk there about his book, and he talked mm-hmm. about how. He just wanted to give the book away for free, and so it was on his website. And then people kept annoying him that they wanted it on their Kindle. And he was like, all right, I'll put it on the Kindle. And Amazon wouldn't let him give it away for free, so he had to charge 99 cents. And that's the only reason he charged for it at all. I wish I had this problem. I wish I had the problem of people banging down my door in order to pay for my content. Well, maybe if you write an awesome book about people getting stranded on Mars. Yeah, like, like that's going to happen. That business model is proven. It's a proven winner. <laughs> so this this is an interesting book. I was trying to describe it to somebody, and I, I mean, the elevator pitch obviously is Apollo thirteen meets Cast Away, right? Because this is about mm-hmm. a this is this is it reads like Apollo thirteen in that it is a sort of fact based, except it's made up, but a fact based approach <laughs> to a uh, a mission to Mars, future historical fiction. It, it's well, it's right. I mean, he tries to get the science right. He's this book apparently came out of him noodling on ideas about what the science would be for a mission to Mars, and you can tell it, it's a very technically oriented approach. It's it's the details of how the how this would have worked and where they put the the refueling ships and the return vessel and and how the whole thing is going to work. And I, I thought that was really interesting that he he tries to take that approach and then the castaway um example is that he has a volleyball no that's not it uh that he he uh you know he gets stranded and that's that's the plot of of the book is there's a dude on mars and he's stuck there and his whole team thinks he's dead so they leave and he's all alone on the surface of mars how could he how in the world could he survive and he works the problem using science and that's you know again you're back to that apollo 13 kind of thing where it's really a lot of math yeah there's a lot, there there's there is a lot of math he's plucky <laughs> he's also a fortunate combination of skill sets yeah that's what i was going to going to say is mark watney this main character he is literally the only person who could have survived <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Everybody else on the team would be dead. He is a botanist engineer, and pretty much when you're stranded on Mars, it would be good to be able to know how to try and grow some food so you can survive. And uh, you have to be an electrical engineer who can wire things and fix things. Yeah, he's a mechanical engineer, so... um... Well, you don't write books about the other people who get stranded on Mars, because they just die right away, and it's boring. (laughs) Well, they're a combination blogger-nutritionist. I mean, I, I spent my time thinking of like the most useless combinations he would send into outer space. Yeah. 
but uh, you know that well. No, I I do appreciate that almost everybody on on his crew had some sort of heavy engineering or computer science background because it it does make a lot of sense that you have to have somebody who can keep a really cool head and fix hard mechanical stuff when there there is no but there's no IT department within you know several hundred thousand miles. Well, they're astronauts, and astronauts are trained to do that, right? So. Well, they've got, and they do have to grow things, and they—I mean, li- the the, the skill set for people living on Mars um, has to be uh, this dovetailing of being an astronaut and being, you know, having skills, being a settler, kind of, and having those skills too. Did did anybody else have like those Scholastic magazines in their classroom growing up? Like that hand that. Oh yeah. Do, do you remember like I think it was GE that used to do the fantastical ads in the back of them where it was we'll have underwater colonies and we'll be. <laughs> No, it was like, it, yeah. And um, you have this dovetailing with Epcot Center. And um, I discovered hydroponics like in fifth and sixth grade. And for about five or six years, oh, I was yeah. hardcore set on becoming a space botanist. Like I was convinced that if I could just study hydroponics and figure out a way to create a self, self-sustaining biome in, some, in, in a space the size of my room, like surely NASA would have to recruit me. <laughs> and so reading this book like totally brought back a, a whole flood of like space crazy middle school memories. It was, it was, it was nice. For what that. was the, what was the old show that had like a, that had a hydroponics garden that was keeping everybody alive? Which one was that? Was that space 1999 or something in that era? There was a, there was a fame. I mean, there was a, they were always talking about the hydroponics garden. I don't think they ever showed the hydroponics garden, but yeah. the hydroponics garden was keeping the whole crew alive. That was like one of the grace notes. And did anyone else here see the movie Sunshine? Where the premise of the movie is they have to go drop a nuke into the sun to restart it. And there's a sun, yeah. But um, yeah, the, the hydroponics garden plays a huge role in that movie too. And John, I, I, Mr. Google tells me that it was indeed Space 1999. No, like to this day, I still hate gardening in actual soil. But you show me a container, <laughs> like you like you show me a container or a raised bed or a hydroponic system, and I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> this is practically a spaceship at that point. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> just... I'll tell you the one thing because I was thinking when I mean I don't know anything about any of the science involved, so I was just mm-hmm. willing to take uh, the author's word for it and Mark's, mm-hmm. I guess. And I started to feel like you know you, you see the Apollo thirteen connection right away, you see the Castaway connection right away, but it ended up feeling to me the book more than anything else like the TV series, the the not great TV series Prison Break. Oh God, I recapped that for television without pity, and every and every week Michael Schofield had to like Jerry rig some sort of crazy. Or, oh, but it's not just that he has to Jerry something, right? It's like Michael Schofield's there, and he's 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 solved this seemingly insurmountable problem, and now they're going to be in the clear. But then, in the last minute of the episode, episode, oh crap! Now there's something even worse—an impossible, unsolvable situation. He's clearly doomed, and then next week he solves it again. But that's that's the structure of the book because you know they they NASA figures out like in what the first quarter that he's still alive, and then it instantly turns to well, oh crap! We obviously have to get him home. So. It's not like man versus man. It's your ultimate man versus nature book. And, and and basically those are nature has tried to kick my ass. I have barely hung on and lather, rinse, repeat for the next 20 chapters. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, – I used – aside from Apollo 13 and Castaway, uh, the example I gave uh, to several people was it's kind of like a Jack London novel where, you know, instead of – it, the frontier is space. But it's like that, you know, you're in Alaska and the, the cold is going to make your fingers fall off if you don't find shelter soon. And it's a little bit like that, that too, that it, it, is, um, it is man versus nature. Into the wild, into the wild with a happier ending. Oh God! No, it's, no, it's I, I absolutely disagree with that. Um, and, and here's no, and here, you are wrong. 
No, I do because I, 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 I've read that book a couple of times. I'm a big John Krakauer fan because I, I kind of go on benders while I read that back to back with Into Thin Air. Um, since Krakauer is fascinated by extreme personalities who take man versus nature to, to, to an edge. And the point that Krakauer makes over and over and over is that Alexander Supertramp had no effing idea what he was doing. He was basically under the impression, he was under the impression that he'd tap into some like Jungian subconscious that teaches you how to live off the land. And he literally knew nothing about the, 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 he, he, not only did he know nothing about where he was going, he also knew nothing about how to react to adverse circumstances. Spoiler alert. Whereas what, <laughs> whereas what you find out with Mark Watney is that he, he approaches every problem and he's like, here's what I know about my situation. Here is how I can find out more information. Here's how I can respond to it. Like Watney has a tremendous amount of respect for, for external authority and, and for external knowledge. And you hear the author say, here's all my research that backs it up. I don't know if I would agree that he has a uh, tremendous respect for external authority. It's also fiction. Though. No, he doesn't. Well, well, not people, but he has. But, but but he has it for for external for external knowledge for for people who have done research and, and run the numbers. Yeah. Which is one of the great aspects of the book, right? Is like his 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 disrespect. His disrespect for authority is mm-hmm. fantastic. <laughs> oh, people are reading this. Oh, yeah. Well, you. <laughs> P.S. Also, their sisters is my favorite moment of the book. Well, I, I I like how they actually make a point of saying it's probably why he survived is because you know he he automatically he's comfortable being non-authoritarian and he's comfortable being outside the boundaries of of convention anyway and that way he's not going to fall to pieces the same way that somebody who needs to be told what to do will and that's why when he ignores nasa later in the book and um and does some things that it uh doesn't want him to do uh it is good that he does that right i mean he gets used to to making his own decisions and that's I mean, that, that is that is why he survives, is that he's independent like that. But it's also funny. I mean, you want to have an engaging uh, personality. And the, the fact that this guy is, is um, um, you know, kind of waking, making jokes and he's a character. And, and that, that gets you a long way because if he was a really boring astronaut who was very serious about his job, that would be a boring read. And then at the same time, you, you kind of want to believe that this guy's letting it rip because he's probably going to die anyway. And he's just trying to keep himself sane. So there's a good there's a good reason for that. Right. It's the it's the sort of hook that lets you believe that he's not completely depressed because he's spending two years by himself. <laughs> right. Watching every 70s sitcom ever made and listening to disco and <laughs> which I don't understand why, you know, astronauts 10 years in our future are so obsessed with 70s television. <laughs> Only one astronaut needed to be right. This is the same way people, you know, get into any weird cultural period and make it their own. Um, Scott McNulty loves murder. She wrote. It's it's true. I also think it was an easy. <laughs> I think it was it was a it was a quick, Sorry, can it we was stop a quick way to character. Right <laughs> <laughs> it was a quick way to characterize someone. You know, it was just oh, this is the hard ass military captain who has a secret thing for disco. <laughs> womp womp. Um, yeah. You know, just like oh, and this is the diminutive computer scientist who may be turned into a cannibal if this mission goes off the hook. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it's also just funny, like having to deal with someone else's idea of entertainment for, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. six months or however long you can go through their library. Oh, yeah. I, I have a hard time believing, though, that this guy, you know, or, was it was it that he brought stuff and it was lost or what, did he just not bring entertainment? Because I, that was what baffled me is like, why doesn't he have his own store of entertainment for the flight out and the flight back? And instead, he's left with these scraps they maybe take it back with them as a oh well you know Mark Mark loved Monty Python so let's have fifteen <laughs> minutes of Monty Python every night or, or something I don't know 
they wouldn't have known they were losing Mark when they were going because they were evacuating, right? And they got, he got lost as on the way to the uh, whatever that vehicle MVRR whatever it's called. I, I thought there was some kind of technical issue that lost whatever he had, but I don't remember it, so I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, it, it ends up being funny that he's he's miserably you know powering through every '70s sitcom and listening to disco, <laughs> but but it, it you know I, I found that kind of perplexing that he didn't have his own store, and maybe I just missed where he said, "Well, I had it, but I've watched it all, and I'm tired of it, and I want something new." Or I, I lacked the foresight to pack enough stuff, but she packed every sitcom ever, so I'm going to watch that. I don't know. My only complaint about the book is I really liked it, but I did not like the the narrative context switching that happened, or the, the, the I guess the cheating to make the narrative devices work sometime. So... You know, a lot of it is his own journaling. And I'll, I'll accept that he's got very little to do on Mars when he's not trying to survive, so he can write in his journal. That's fine. But when he has the, the really borderline end-of-his-life situation where he's in the, the compromised airlock trying to live, and it's verbal journals, right? It's, it's transcripts <laughs> of his recordings that he made. I wasn't, it really took me out of the story to try to imagine I'm in the situation. I'm going to narrate the whole thing for my future journaling purposes. I didn't like it. I would have much rather it either context switched to the third person or, uh, that he, he wrote about it later because I did not at all buy that he was narrating it. That's a very good logical point, but it never bothered me at all. I tend to narrate to myself if I'm, if I'm in the middle of, uh, doing something unpleasant or, or but he has to conserve oxygen so. like it's it's extremely <laughs> dangerous for him to keep talking i cry and curl up in a ball <laughs> that doesn't really conserve oxygen less <laughs> again again that's the story of how john moltz died on mars that's right that. yeah. so that's not a different as, book. not as good very short not not as good no, the you know this is the literary equivalent of the found footage movie right it is an epistolary essentially novel and i love epistolary novels too oh my god so it's it's a challenge uh to to break out of that and is it realistic i i thought you were going to go another direction lex cuz that that didn't um that didn't confuse me or or frustrate me at all the cutaways to earth while i I appreciate the drama because you see that they're searching for him and he's searching, you know, for a way to to reach them and that's all kind of connected and it's and it actually is kind of a kick to realize that they're watching as he does things. They finally right. spot him. Um but still it's it's cheating because it's not from his perspective. And what's worse um am I the only one who thinks this? I thought all the characters on earth were miserable. I mean they weren't even human beings because they were kind of like two-dimensional characters, but they were all jerks. They were all just Awful people. They were uh, stock NASA bureaucrats. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't feel like they were jerks. You didn't think, I didn't they, think were, they were jerks? I didn't. The, the PR lady's a jerk. The uh, manager is a jerk. The 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 woman who finds him is not a jerk. Maybe it's just because I deal with a lot of PR people. But you know that to be honest, <laughs> like, no. Like I could totally hear some PR person going. Okay, she was very this is sarcastic. What I have to- but this is what I have to I give out to the reporters, jerk. and this is my client that I'm protecting. And and I absolutely know PR people like her, where mm-hmm. the the idea that this is a human being trapped on Mars is like, yes, yes, I'm very concerned. But what I'm more concerned about is I have this pack of jerkish reporters who need something, give it to me so I can give it to them. And that's that's how good PR people work. I didn't I didn't think they were necessarily jerks. I did think they were uh, one dimensional characters. <laughs> I thought the posturing uh, between bureaucrats was a little lines. silly. Yeah, residents of Flatland. Yeah, and it's it's a it's the it's the cliche that the the bureaucrat wants to do um, the the thing that's 
going to look better as opposed to the thing that has a better chance of actually succeeding. Yeah, just the whole dynamic and the 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 power relationships and them arguing and and the stuff they say. Yeah, I never felt that they were really characters, and I I found most of them unpleasant. And I I, I thought it was a, a liability of the book that the people on Earth were were mm. all um all yeah were were kind of awful and also flat. I was really touched by the Chinese researchers, actually, because they were like, well, we had this nationalist goal and fine, fine, we have an astronaut who's going on a mission, but we sacrificed a lot of, of what could have been our own good science for this one guy. And, and the fact that they point out that there's a huge price to be paid, but they're happy to pay it, I was really glad that um, it wasn't just this one dimensional, at last, the glorious Red Republic will make it into space, but rather it was like, look, we, we weighed all these factors, we, we made this decision, it cost us a lot. And I thought I thought it was one of the few really poignant moments in the book. But but still, the government wouldn't have done it if they didn't get a man on Mars. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was ultimately that's what the Chinese government went for yeah. is you're, you'll mm-hmm. put somebody on the next mission. And I appreciated that they I actually appreciate that the book went to tremendous detail about the horse trading and the pragmatism because it was one thing to say, let's get this guy home. But you know that everybody at every step of the way is going to be protecting their own fiefdom and their own ass. And so they also talked about here are all the things that had to happen in order for everybody to feel like they were doing the right thing and not risk too much. You know, when you think about it, there was a remark there was a remarkable lack of risk in getting this guy home. Like the funding was magically lined up, public opinion was apparently still all, oh my god, we've got to bring this guy home, as opposed to the 8,000 blogs that would have sprung up all, they're spending this much money right. on him when you could have spent it on rebuilding <laughs> yeah. Detroit or, or like whatever. And instead it was- That was, was a it really was... good blogger voice, by the way. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they all sound like that. They do. They do. It's true. I blog. <laughs> <laughs> and this would, have, this would have taken place about the same time that RoboCop would have taken place. So Detroit is probably a good, good analogy. <laughs> Excellent point. Well, did, I, you know, after I read the book, within two weeks or so, uh, Ars Technica published an article about a a hypothetical mission to rescue the astronauts on the Columbia, and it was very similar, and it, based on uh, you know a project that NASA was tasked with when they were doing their investigation after the Columbia shuttle disaster, and so it was you know. They talked about all the things that would have to go right, all the corners that would have had to be cut, and the different, you know, the the way the rescue mission would have gone, and it was very similar. It really read, read I mean, still didn't happen, not at all reality, but you can't even read that article without getting caught up in the dream of, wow, maybe they're going to save these people who you already know have died. But, uh, yeah, very similar. So I just want to – probably worth a show note, Jason. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, that's a good good piece. And and that that is the flavor of this, right? I mean, I think I think if there's a criticism to be made of the the way this book is is written, it is um it is obsessed with technical details. It is it is the transcript of an engineer on Mars trying to figure out the technical issues that will allow him to stay alive. It, it is that. This is this is a book that is telling I mean, it's more than this, but you can tell that what this book is is about how do you solve the problem of what happens if a guy is tra- is trapped on Mars, and and a la- in a larger standpoint, how do you, you know, how would the manned Mars missions be set up too? We in great detail because there aren't sort of hand waving solutions here. It's all all the solutions are, you know, based on well, this is how it would work, and then this might happen, and then how would he deal with that? And I guess you know, I liked it. But I also could appreciate the criticism of somebody who says, you know, I, I wanted I wanted more story mm. and less um, technical detail about how to fix my spacesuit on Mars because I am not going to Mars and don't own a spacesuit. 
<laughs> but it doesn't go into to uh, I don't think it goes into annoying detail. I mean the 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 detail is only a couple paragraphs long. I mean there, I mean my criticism of some other science fiction books is just the uh, in which this book does not do at all is the long boring descriptions of the sweeping majesty mm. of the Martian plains. And he does not waste a single word on any of that. He does waste a lot of words about stringing together resistors so he can change the ampage of the electricity from the, <laughs> the habitat to whatever uh, his drill is using. I think uh, he's I still think he's he's much more compact in his writing. I mean, and I think that's why I was able to tear through this book in a couple of days because he, he will do that for a few paragraphs. But I've I've read other books that go on for pages. I, I felt like it was the right amount. I'm on team molds here. I felt like it was, mm. you know, enough to show that he, like, you want it to be believable. And it felt very yeah. grounded in reality, whether it was legit or not. I mean, it's, it turns out he did a ton of research, but. And all of that stuff is, is, is based, is, is also related to the action. It has, it has actual critical input into what is going on as opposed to Mars. For years, it has lain undisturbed. <laughs> the, the natives called oh, it Barsoom. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also good. No, there's no, there are no indigenous Martian life. <laughs> yes, that's also a, oh, thank God. Also a plus. No, it's you get the feeling that it's real science. I, I, mm -hmm. I never felt that the, I never felt that that the the technical detail overwhelmed the story. Where I was tapping my, you know, tapping my feet and being like, come on, come on, back to the story. I felt at a few points, I, I. I started to wonder, um, is this too much detail? But then it, it it seemed to be timed fairly well. I just I I think that some people don't want to read a book with this kind of technical detail, even at the level that it is. They would, I guess, rather have the you know majesty of the vistas as he's traveling. But it, instead, this is definitely the perspective of this guy, and he's very focused on his goals. And so we we don't get that. There are a few moments where he says, "Right, I, I took a moment to appreciate this thing that I saw." But you know, he's really focused on staying alive right. and uh, figuring out what you know problems he needs to solve to get to his destination. The thing that was hardest for me to understand of the science was probably just because I'm stupid was the, uh, the big giant sack of nuclear energy that he was toting around every <laughs> once in a while to stay warm. I didn't quite understand how that all worked. I was glad that it worked. That's how space probes, like that's how like the Voyager and a bunch of uh, the space probes, they have the, that's how they stay, uh, with their electronics active is they've got, uh, isotopes that, uh, decay and emit, heat and so it, you know you wouldn't want to do that around people necessarily but <laughs> it actually does keep things warm so that's a real that's a real thing oh i believed it it was very funny because he's like don't break it don't break don't break don't break because <laughs> he's like well i'm dead if i can't use this but i'm also dead if it breaks so let's be careful but i'm gonna <laughs> use it he, he buries it it's funny because he he digs it up because they buried it because people shouldn't be around it. And then he uses it for a little while and then he goes and puts it back and like buries it again. Like, all right. And then he has to get it out a third time. But that's a real, that's a real thing. I'm imagining that, you know, his overall lifespan is shortened from his radiation exposure, but still it's all right. <laughs> well, it's longer than what it would have been. Right. Yeah. And, and Mars has a thinner atmosphere than earth does anyway. So he got more doses of radiation <laughs> anyway. So Although it's further happen. away. That is true. From the sun. We should get Andy Weir to calculate out his lifetime uh, radiation <laughs> exposure. I, I, bet he, I bet he already has. It's probably a blog, a blog post somewhere with, uh, with the details. 
Andy Weir, he he was he is uh, I so I watched this Google talk that he gave where he uh, was demonstrating the application that the program that he wrote that calculated all the orbits of all of the spacecraft to make sure that it would all work <laughs> and where Mars would be when Andy uh, when uh, the different things happened on the different days and he knew. Uh, every day. Oh, dude, he knows sci-fi fans. No, yeah, yeah. he knows sci-fi fans. Well, because he is one. If, Yes, because you, you realize, of course, that you can't write a book like this without having a thousand space nerds fact-checking you and say, this book doesn't work because X, Y, Z. And, and going they sound like there, bloggers. So. I think yes, I, I, they're similar. The many well, space they, are, they are bloggers. I, well, I, I think, think this raises a larger <laughs> issue is how much of your fandom comes down to being able to enjoy the, the the idea of something and how much of your fandom comes down to being able to enjoy the accuracy or the, the verity of it. You well, know? this book obviously came from the came from the facts. I mean, I really believe that he didn't work all the... I mean, he may have... He may have checked his work at the end, but I think most of the work in this book is up front, that he was curious about how it would work and then thought, well, I could write this in a story. And I love that. I mean, that's why I that's why I love um, Apollo 13 and the book that the movie was based on and the facts that the book that the movie was. Ba- anyway, um, I like that because um, I, I would probably read a straight up novel about the technical all the technical details and the interpersonal issues of sending people to mars and back even if there was no disaster and somebody wasn't left behind i would probably eat that up just because it it's i I think that's one of the valuable things that science fiction can do is make you think what would it be like if we went to mars what would the details be how would the people react to it and you don't necessarily even need a disaster but in this case we get that but we still get all of those great details and that was that was fun i realized that that's not for everybody but i love being able to imagine you know okay if we're going to go to mars in the next 50 years how would we do that and then tell a story based on that which this sort of is time to take a break and let me tell you about our sponsor it's new Relic. New Relic is a software analytics company that helps make sense of billions of metrics. I'm going to sound like Carl Sagan here a little bit. I'm going to do a little cosmos for you. Eat your heart out, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Billions and billions of metrics across millions and millions of applications. And it all happens not in the enormity of space time, but in real time. As you may have heard, it's 2014, and one thing people are really focused on this year is seamless application performance across multiple platforms on all of their devices. Now, you may think this sounds simple, and if you do, you're wrong. It is not simple making an app work consistently well on lots of different devices, all with different operating systems running different types of software, is incredibly complex. How complex? Well, back in the old days, say 2008, it was basically impossible for an app developer to know how their app was performing once it got shipped to production. You ship it, cross your fingers. Remember that? You do internal bug hunts, you cross your fingers and ship it, you hope for the best, and then you just wait for people to yell at you, right? You wait on Twitter, you wait in email, you wait on the app stores, and hope that people don't yell at you. Well, those days are over. Now, people may still yell at you there, but you don't have to wait for that. New Relic lets you track application performance down to the end user level in real time. That means you can spot problems, find bugs, and fix code fast before the users even notice anything is wrong, before they have a chance to get mad at you. You can see it and you can fix it using the real-time metrics that New Relic 
brings you. So go check out New Relic by visiting newrelic.com slash incomparable to learn more and use the offer code incomparable to take advantage of a special 30-day extended free pro trial. That's exclusive to listeners of The Incomparable at newrelic.com slash incomparable. And thank you so much to New Relic for indulging my inner Carl Sagan and for sponsoring The Incomparable. One thing in it that I thought was was well done was how it attempted to reflect the tediousness of some things without trying to, I, I think what the goal wasn't to make the reading it boring, but to reflect, this is extremely time consuming. Just the, the initial way that he starts communicating with NASA where they, and he has to, he has to devise the systems on his own because they can't send any messages to him at first. Uh, just, I don't know. I, I found all of that. I could imagine how painful and slow the correspondence was at first, you know, rotating the, the thing telescope, whatever it was. And, uh, I, I appreciated there the, I appreciated Weir's skill at doing that. You know, he puts in all the effort to building up his, his garden covers the entire thing with uh, soil. And then eventually it's all screwed. I like that. I like, I like the suffering alongside him. Jason, I, way 20, 30, 60 hours ago, you and I were talking about the, the context switching. Your big complaint was that the characters on earth didn't seem super well-defined and, or they were all jerks. Yep. Um, the only time that it really bothered me in that front, because I, I mean, I did want to hear part of the story from Earth, and I don't know how else he could have done it. Yeah, I, oh, I I agree. I, I it's cheating, but I I I'll allow it because it was it was good. The cheat that I did not think added anything to the story and took me out even more was the unnecessary backstory of the piece of fabric or whatever that ends up failing at one. Yes, point. yes, oh. yes. I understood um, what he was going for, yeah. but it did not right. work for me at all. It felt very Tom Clancy-ish, to be honest with you, where you're like, I've done the research. <laughs> no, because Tom Clancy's books are like that, too, where in order to find out how some how some porthole figures, he takes you into, like, the life story of the architect and the tensile strength of tungsten-infused whatever, and... <laughs> <laughs> and 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 this was this had a lot going for it too, where where it was like okay, we we get that these parts are are made in such and such a way, but either you have to do it for all of them, or or you kind of have to cut that out and say, look, sometimes stuff just happens. <laughs> in both the Andy Chaikin book Man in the Moon, which is what From the Earth to the Moon, the HBO series was based on, and in the uh, the book that Apollo thirteen was based on, there are sections like that, which is well, you know. Essentially, here's what probably happened, why the explosion happened on Apollo 13 or why the Apollo 1 uh, deaths happened. Right. And then it's like, well, there was this and this. And with Apollo 13, it's like there was a spark and it was probably this thing. And it was probably just something wrong here. And and like the Challengers O-rings. Right. You could actually draw that line back to this tiny, tiny detail that cascades all the way to having this disaster and that's totally what he was going for and it certainly builds up the tension in a way right where it's like oh boy something bad's gonna happen oh geez what's it gonna be right right you know another thing's gonna fail right but you know it doesn't happen with any of the other things and it was yeah i agree it seemed it seemed weird and out of place i was gonna say the flipping back and forth i think works in many other instances and in particular i'm thinking when they first realized that he uh for comedic effect when he they first realize that he's still alive and and they 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 think oh my god i can only wonder what he's thinking and i don't want to ruin it but he's but he's he's thinking something absolutely ridiculous he's not thinking anything at all about like oh my god i can't believe those jerks left me here no he's watching you know gilligan's island reruns (laughs) yeah 
that was a great kind of way. I love that. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I mean, it's fu- it's funny. I don't want to make it seem like this is what we're talking about is some you know engineering nerds fantasy about a, a trip to Mars. I mean, it is that, but it's not just that, and it's not like there are pages of. So please consult in the back of the book. You'll find several appendices and some <laughs> diagrams of how it, it, it's not like that. It could be like that, but it's not. Um, he he does show a lot of his work, but it's funny. The character is very amusing because he says all sorts of crazy stuff because he is kind of entertaining himself and he doesn't care anymore. And that comes out in the voice. And, you know, I, it's strong. I, I, I think I could see how some people might think that it was a little forced, but I enjoyed it. I felt like this guy is just a character. He just Not only are we lucky that he's a botanist and an engineer, but we're also lucky that he's got a very wacky personality because there wouldn't be much of a book, even if he had the other two things and could do all these tasks competently. If he was boring... Wouldn't be much of a book. Why would why would you write that book? So I think if you've got a high schooler who's taking either chemistry or physics, you it lob them this book because it's a nice. What what struck me was how um, how much of a natural teacher Weir is as a writer, and how he walks you through. Well, thanks to this property, this is how this has to work, and so I'm counting on X Y Z, and all of the chemical reactions he he details in trying to make water and and trying to Jerry rig all of his different solutions. You could probably sit down with somebody who was who was grasping basic, trying to grasp basic chemistry or basic physics, and go, "Okay, look, you know, this is your real life example. It's better than a word problem, and this will probably help you grasp it a lot better than sitting in class, um, reading through your textbook." So, it's one of those books that makes you feel smarter. Just like, "Oh, yeah, that does make sense. Oh, it is a fact." Yeah, yeah. There's a crazy number of things that sort of interweave, um, and some of them are fortuitous, you know, uh, deliberately fortuitous, I'm sure. But just like the fact that. He can make soil uh, because he's using his own poop, as and it's okay to use his own poop as well as the poop of the other astronauts that's been out uh, that they you know they threw out the door because all of their bacteria is dead, but it's still good organic matter that I can use, and I'm already my 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 bacteria is already in me, so I can eat my own bacteria, and I yeah. happen to have. Thanksgiving potatoes <laughs> and, and beans. Yes. The potatoes well, and beans. Good thing. <laughs> that, that that's a the fact. Like Again, revolting against book. the potatoes is delightful. But uh, <laughs> no, there, there was a lot less botany in there compared to the other stuff. But um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's because people are like, well, I really don't care about apomia as a genre, so as a as a genus. So it, it was a lot less botany than the other stuff. However, a lot more botany than most the- books I read. A hundred percent more botany. This was a heavy botany heavy, I would say. In, in but, but yes, it was mo- more heavy with uh, with electrical engineering and other kinds of engineering, and uh, as well as all the astrophysics that goes into it. Does anybody else find it hard to believe that CNN would have a lost astronaut today show every day that would be successful in any way? I had a hard time. I find time it hard to believe that. that CNN is on in ten years. Yeah, I yes, agree. that was my that was my that was the biggest <laughs> obstacle to believe for me. <laughs> And again, like I said, I found it really hard to believe that everyone was a hundred was uncritically behind this. Oh, we've got to get this stranded astronaut home. I mean, I realized that for the people who are working in NASA, they they don't have time for the haters. And I'm certain that the guy who's on Mars, like the last thing he's concerned about is public opinion. But, but they, I, even the people in NASA, they lose. I mean, not only do the Chinese lose their mission, the people in NASA lose a mission to Mars as a part of this because they got to send the same team back around again to get them. Well, but I I absolutely believe that the people from NASA were. Would want to get him back, or that most of them would. I think that it's 
I don't think that you have to accept that nobody is complaining about the fact that they're rescuing this mission, but I, I'm willing to accept that I don't have to spend any time in the book on them since I'm also, you know, rooting for the guy to live on Mars. Yeah, as as somebody who actually loves the movie Contact, I will say I was actually grateful that we didn't have the uh, the senator played yeah. by Gary Shandling who says, now, we're spending several billion dollars here on this and it's just one man. Why don't we just have another mission? And, you know, one man's life certainly is is worth something, but it's not worth billions of dollars. And then he ma- he has imaginations behind the scenes to try to get them to cancel the mission. And at the last minute, somebody has a, a, a touching emotional response and realizes, damn it, we can't leave that man on Mars. And they decide, I was kind of happy not to have to go through that whole rigmarole, right? I would have liked to have seen a little bit more political or, or media theater because, again, we live in such a we live in such sharply polarized and, and oppositional culture that, again, the minute that this guy it's discovered that he's stranded on the moon, you're going to have a thousand people, and this is why science doesn't work, and you're going to have more people who talk about ethics, and 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 everybody's going to take that issue as a cue to mount their own personal hobby horse and ride their point to the ground. And, and then uh, Matthew McConaughey steps from the side yeah, and says, right. let's talk about the, the spiritual aspects of this. No, you're in the wrong movie. Get back to contact. You <laughs> get back. I feel like this nation's in a place where we will receive any message that Matthew McConaughey cares to give <laughs> yeah, us yeah. at the moment. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, the, the rescue mission to me didn't feel uh, dissimilar from other movies or books about rescue missions that are more military focused where you don't usually see well let's not go in and rescue the no it's leave leave no man behind right exactly and so it felt the same mentality as that and i totally i mean if you accept that cnn's on the air which i get is probably (laughs) the biggest science fiction leap in the book (laughs) but i i I totally did accept that they would have a daily show or really i don't even think it would be a show i think it would be 24 hours of it you know, we're recording this when there's you know a a plane that is presumed crashed that nobody can find and it's all that uh it's all that's on CNN all day. Yeah, but I just think people would get tired of him after after a while. But, you know. I don't know. I was uh, jealous of him a little bit. Once once it seemed like he was going to probably do okay, I was jealous of him for a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. <laughs> once all the hard part was done. Although, actually, no, because then he gets so at the end. Um, I, okay, we're going to fire. We, we, we kind of been nice without the spoilers, but I'm going to fire off the spoiler horn now. <laughs> The, in in the end, right, he has to strip the re- the return vehicle from the next mission. He has to drive all this way and get there. He has to strip it to make it as light as possible, and it's like full of holes. And he's going to be. Sh- uh, I I'm into. I'm imagining like one of the little rocket ship rides at Disneyland where there's not even a seatbelt and it's just the centrifugal force that keeps you down. And that seems great because physics are, is on your side, but then it starts spinning and you're like, oh my god, I'm going to get thrown out. I'm going to die. Uh, or is that just me? So. Um, <laughs> This, this, that, it, it, so he's never, he's never safe, right? He, he's like, even to the end, it's like, oh, here we go again. And although I didn't feel like it was episodic, like Prison Break, where literally every step there would be a new challenge, they, they were interspersed. At the end, it was like, oh man, nothing can be easy for this guy at all. So he, he has harrowing, a harrowing journey all the way to the last page of this book. Yeah, but they're spread over like 18 months or whatever, however, I can't, I'm not even sure how long it is. It's spread over a long period of time when you think about it. I just think it's funny that at the end, he, you know, it's just one last kick in the pants yeah. for this guy. <laughs> yes, right. And plus, he he is on an alien planet. Yeah, this is true. And he's got a tarp <laughs> over the top of his uh, his rocket ship. 
I was actually like, oh, the, when the when the, the storm first came up and everyone on Earth who's monitoring this is like, oh, crap, he's heading straight into a storm and he has no idea. Like, I had to go put down the book and take a moment to collect <laughs> myself because I was like, oh, my God, no, no, oh, no, there's a storm coming for him. <laughs> How will just... he know? Will he notice? That's that's effective drama, too, right? It's like, there's a big storm. I hope he notices we can't talk to him. And then you're watching him and you're like, come on, figure it out, figure it out. I, I just said I'm sure he'll figure out some convoluted engineering way to do it. Oh, he did. And now here's here's a detailed explanation. Well, he drove in one direction <laughs> for a while. and I had to be careful when I read this book because like, I would just get so tense for him. And yeah, I was like, well, it's going to work out because I, I doubt people would be raving about a book. book like, like, And then he died 50 yards from the ship that was going to save him. The <laughs> end. I mean, this isn't a Cormac McCarthy book, so it'll be fine. But but I, I, I did have this debate over whether I wanted him to live or not. And, or, you know, Whoa! I, I oh felt. Oh, my gosh. I had just, a crush on him. I wanted him no, to no, no. I mean, I liked him. I wanted him to live in general. But I, just, I was thinking for the good of the story. I was thinking, well, it seems to me that he's clearly going to live because that's I – mean, you don't write the book and then have the guy die. At the end, he's he's gone through so much, but I I don't know, Jason. You said that you felt like you know up until the last page things were hard for him, but I felt towards the end that it actually suddenly was surprisingly easy. Like, oh geez, I think this spaceship is falling apart that I've you know taken all the parts out of, and I, I feel like this is never going to work. But like everything kind of goes fine during the rescue. Mm-hmm. There there's there's hiccups, but they they rescue him, and I. I, I don't know. I wanted something bad to happen to him, at least, that was beyond just, I need to <laughs> survive an arm. on Mars. I, right. I, I thought he should lose an arm. That's exactly what it is. I thought that when he... Wear an eye patch. I thought that the arm <laughs> on the spacesuit incident should have been foreshadowing that he was going to end up losing an arm or something. Like I felt like he should have some long-lasting visible scar from his journey. See, Lex, I, I didn't think he was going to die at the end. I did wonder at one point if he was going to die in the middle, and then we were going to have many chapters detailing what happens to a dead body in a spacesuit on Mars. <laughs> Just like, and then and then the eyes began to cave in on themselves, and then uh, the bacteria in his gut, right? And just like in- incredible technical detail. That's... So, Scott, I am sensing from you yeah. a little bit of hostility toward no hostility toward the uh, you. You seem skeptical about the use of all of the uh, technical detail. That you 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 are not as enthusiastic about it as <laughs> as as some. I will say that I read the book in like three hours. It was certainly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, this is not showing off. It's just, I, I know how to read, uh, and it's a very quick book. <laughs> unlike me, unlike me, which is fair, which is fair. I admitted that early on. Do you read diagonally, Scott? I do not read diagonally. Right. Uh, it's very fast paced. Right? It is. And, it and is a fast story, read. It's obvious, you know, man versus uh, Mars. It's very engaging, um, but without that uh, tension, I feel like uh, the technical detail is almost to the point where it overwhelms the entire story. Uh, it, it certainly, there is almost no characterization in this book other than uh, the main character, Mark. And even he is kind of a cartoon. Uh, the astronauts that are on the rest of his team are certainly cartoons. The The NASA people aren't even cartoons. Uh, I mean, and so I, I think the biggest character in the book is probably uh, the ingenuity of Mark as opposed to his actual characterization. Is that is that a problem with the book? No, I, I liked it, uh, but I didn't think it was like mind-blowingly great. And as I was reading it, I thought, this will be a much better movie, I think, than a book <laughs> that I'm reading, uh, which is not a problem, obviously, and people like the book, that's fine. Um, they're just wrong, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I would say it was super fun as opposed to mind-blowingly great. 
It was fun. And, and I completely agree that he is – I mean, this is one of my points about about him. Like, I mean, I think anybody who is, who is by themselves for that period of time is going to fall into a deep, deep depression. And he does not show any sign. I mean, at one point, he think he says that he misses talking to people when the communications break down. But he, you know, he doesn't really show that in his in his words because he's constantly cracking jokes. So it it does not that does not ring true to me as as far as real people go. I know. I mean, it's a lot of fun. And I also so it started off as kind of a serial thing, and I think that that a uh, serialized story, and I think that comes through. Uh, I'm certain that the, the publisher has done a great job of editing it again, but I did feel a little repetition about, hey, remember that thing I did four pages ago? Uh, which would make sense if it were a serial, but it is, in fact, a novel that I'm reading, <laughs> so I don't need to be reminded of what ju- you just told me. <laughs> the uh, I, I, I agree. I, I had fun reading it, and... And so one, we'll talk about this when we shift over to what are, what are we reading. Um, I read another book after this that I thought was a much, much better book. Um, but that book was m- much more of a struggle to get through, and I could only read so much of it at, at, a, at a time. And this, I absolutely inhaled it. I mean, it was it was super fast and fun, and there's a place for that in in uh, in in books i i really every so often especially if you're like on a beach or something right you you want uh you want those books that are, are just fast and enjoyable and they pull you through the story and uh it's a fun ride and this was that i did scott have those feelings that um that i have from time to time when i'm reading a book where i'm like yeah this i you know, i can practically start casting the movie right it's like this is a great fun it's a fun book but it will make a good movie or it should Exactly. And I think there are different reasons for people, different reasons to read different things. And this is a, a fine book to read. It's not a, a, you know, a work of literature or a staggering. It hasn't changed my life in any way, uh, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, could I have lived not reading it? Probably. Am I glad I did? Sure. Well, there was a small chance that you couldn't have lived if you hadn't read it. So I'm well, glad if, you if read I, it. Well, if, if I've become stranded on Mars... I will probably still just die immediately because <laughs> there's no way I'm surviving that. But uh, Sam Rockwell, Sam Rockwell, mm. no, yeah, no, he, no? he was no. on the moon, okay. wasn't he? Yeah, he was on the moon. <laughs> he's already yeah. been in a spaceship movie. He's not allowed in another one. No, right. This no. has to be Bruce Willis right, or nobody. No, I actually think I think I think the casting rule is if you've already made one shitty space movie, then you're not allowed to be in anymore. <laughs> it'll, it'll be uh, Bradley oh, Cooper. Bradley oh my Cooper. god, we're gonna. Jesus, if it's that. Bradley Cooper, I'm gonna I'm gonna root for him to go. Oh my god. <laughs> So we disagree on the casting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's you know you you I, I'm hearing a lot of bad mouthing of the characterizations of many of the non lead characters, non Mark characters. Uh-huh. I was impressed and surprised by how funny at least one of his uh, crewmates was in the when when they made contact, and then the uh, one of the women from the crew, in theory, is IMing him or emailing him that when he gets to the ship, she's going to ravish him. And make passionate love to him. And then she's like, of course. No, I didn't type that. That was, you know, one of the other crewmates instead. I thought that that crewmate who typed that on behalf of the woman, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. It's nice that, th- it's nice that they had some rapport. <laughs> no, no, it is. <laughs> it shows that, it's, that NASA is full of hilarious people who go, to the, who go into outer space. Botanist astronaut jokesters. Does anybody believe that NASA is full of really hilarious people? I, I do actually. I used to know I used to know I need I used to babysit for a physicist who worked at NASA Langley and he was one of the funniest guys I ever knew. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. No, this is no like this is back in the eighties and like he and his wife were big into yoga and he played a trombone as a hobby. She was a theoretical mathematician <laughs> and like They're never letting him on a long duration space flight. His name was Riker. No, he he was on <laughs> like I was fourteen I was fourteen and he handed me his collection of Kurt Vonnegut and he was like, Here, read this, you'll really enjoy oh. it. And you know, he was a really funny guy. He used to do voices. I just my impression, to be honest, my impression was that NASA. Was Did he do a just- blogger voice? The town is like this. <laughs> no, my impression was like NASA was a, was a laugh riot with slide rules. I mean, it, it could be for all I know. <laughs> mm, probably well, isn't. That is a mixture of comedy and tragedy if there are slide rules involved. <laughs> but it didn't. Uh, but but many of them are. I mean, many of them in the book are misanthropes, and that didn't seem out of character or out of. Or unlikely. I can't remember the name of the scientist of the of the mathematician who was asked to calculate one route, and was like, "No, wait, I think I'll do something completely different." And um, it was you know the guy- I can't remember his name. No, Not and a good he character. Well, because because his basic function was, I am a math nerd, and I'm going to nerd on some math now, and and that was pretty that much was like that. every character. <laughs> <laughs> He's the author, essentially. Now, I liked the astronauts who were who had left him behind in that we got a little bit more idea of what their dynamic was. I, I and I w- I wanted a little more of how miserable it would be to shut up be shut up in a ship like that with those people for so long. But there was some of that. It was that the, the NASA people are the ones who bothered me because I found them kind of unpleasant. But you know that's fine. I just I felt the book was much stronger when it was in space. Um, what more should we say before we move on to what are we reading? Does anybody else have any, uh, anything they want to bring up about the Martian before we move on? Just that it's an incredibly quick read. I mean, I guess we've said that several times, but you know, if, if you're on the fence, it's not like you're making a big commitment. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great airplane book. It's a oh great my God. Airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Short I, flight too. I knocked it off in about five hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're okay with. Yeah. It's not yeah. just that you can read it quickly, but you're motivated to. It's you know you want to know what's going to happen, and you're not you don't have to spend a lot of time puzzling out people's motives or. or, or <laughs> Frankly, or, if you're on the fence and you've listened to this part of the podcast, you're a jerk and you don't deserve. <laughs> you, to read you've it already anyway. spent about half the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know what's going to happen now. Don't bother reading. It. In fact, don't don't read it. If you haven't read it, and you're this far. Just don't forget. You, it. you don't lose. deserve to. <laughs> <laughs> you don't deserve the Martian. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A thousand bloggers rise up in opposition. I think this podcast is so unfair. <laughs> oh, Lex and I both suggested you don't deserve the Martian as the title. Okay. <laughs> Let me have this one, Lex. It's yours. <laughs> um, and Clinton followed right after. All right, let's move on then. Um, so, I, I, I mean, we all liked it enough to say, other than having listened this far to the spoiler horn, and Lex says, if you listen this far and you haven't read it, you are a terrible person and you shouldn't. But generally, <laughs> we would say, we, you know, you should read it. It was fun. Um, your life doesn't depend on it. As Scott quite rightly pointed out, you will not die a lesser person if you uh, don't read it. But it's sure. fun. It's a lot of fun. If you like space stuff, I love space stuff. If you like space stuff, it's fantastic for that. It's a lot of fun. And it is it is quick. You're not going to labor it reading it. It's no. quick and fun. Sound about right? Yes. Yes. All right. Yes. Scott, reluctantly. Yes. Very well. No, it was it was <laughs> yeah. fun. I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not a, a fantastically moving work of literature. It doesn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny, is all I'm saying. I mean, the technical <laughs> facts do, but the, the craftsmanship of the book itself does not. Yeah. 
blog posts from uh, an, an astronaut, a fake <laughs> fictional astronaut. All right, let's move on to um, uh, what I like to do at the end of a book club, which is ask what we're reading or have or have read recently. Um, this is always good to see what other things are people are reading rather than uh, you know just talk about the book that we talked about. So. What are we reading? Um, Lex, are you reading anything else, or do, is this your book for the year? No, I, you, I, I don't watch movies, but I read a lot of, I read a lot of books. All right. I, read a, I read a book every night uh, before – I mean, I don't That's, refinish wow. the book. <laughs> I, read, I do my wow. reading at night before I go to sleep. And so some nights it's like two pages at a time because then I fall asleep, but The Martian was one that bucked that trend. So the book I read before The Martian that I enjoyed is from 2007 by Laura Lippman called What the Dead Know. It's a – actually a very compellingly written uh mystery you have a a woman who claims to be the long lost abducted girl from a, a abduction of young sisters from many many years ago in baltimore and she says that she's one of the sisters and that she watched her other sister get murdered and explains where she's been the whole time and people have to try to figure out if she is who she says she is it was really good and then uh the book that i am in right now you can date boys when you're 40, Dave Barry on parenting and other topics he knows very little about by Dave Barry. It's really good. I woke up my wife laughing out loud to the book, and uh, that's always a good sign. <laughs> wow, Dave Dave Barry. Not not cutting edge. Funny. Not cutting edge. Do you have any Garfield treasuries that you're also <laughs> just, This is a brand new book. It just came out. Th- this book, You Can Date Boys When You're 40, was released on March 4th. Well, because Dave Barry had a daughter with like his, his second wife, so yeah. It, no, it's like his fourth wife, but yes. <laughs> Seriously, he moved on. Don't again? marry Dave Barry. Yeah, this this is his, Dave this is his Jewish. Wife. The forward, this? That's what Seriously, the wow. Yeah, oh I, Dave Barry is the person who made me want to be a writer, so I read all of his books when they yeah. come out. Yeah. He's funny. Don't marry Dave Barry. A guide to marriage by with Dave Barry. <laughs> by Dave, <laughs> Dave Barry. <laughs> Dave Barry's guide to marriage. <laughs> I can't believe you gave me the Garfield slam. It's a brand new book. <laughs> yeah, well, I had to. I had to. Gene Shalit also has a new book. Yeah, you should all check it. Oh, good. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> good. If you like writing, it's the right <laughs> choice. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Gene Shalit. That's all I got. <laughs> well, that was good, Lex. Thank you. My pleasure. John Moltz. What are you reading? Uh, uh, two two books. I'm in the middle of two books right now. One is The Cassock Gambit by M.C. Plunk which is a science fiction book, which I'm, I'm enjoying. Uh, it's not as, you know, <laughs> I don't think there's a book that's easier to plow through than the book that we just talked about, but it's not as easy to plow through as that book, but it's, it's, uh, it's enjoyable. And then the, uh, and the other book I'm reading is <laughs> I have a thing about the black death that I like. Um, so I'm reading a book, <laughs> I'm reading a book called, called, and I quote black death, by Robert S. Gottfried, which is a uh, this is I, actually this is only the second book about the Black Death that I've written or written. <laughs> no, that's later. That's later. Uh, read. Yersinia, our friend <laughs> in the plague. And, um, this is a more scientific. Spoiler um, alert: the rats. The rats did it. Explanation. Explanation of what of what uh, what happened oh, during the Black Death. <laughs> Have you read Doomsday Book? No. By Doomsday. oh yeah, it's, I'm writing it down. Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. It's about time travelers who go back to the time of the Black Death. Oh, my God. That's a good Is one. It good? <laughs> it's, it's really – Lex, you'd like it. It's really depressing, like those books that we read for the Apocalypse Book Club. I did not. Because it, it, it is of a kind in that it is about an apocalypse. There's not <laughs> – That really happened. Well, the Black Death was not exactly the feel-good event of the Middle Ages. <laughs> no. 
There's a really funny Connie Willis book you should read called Bellwether, which actually I have found very useful in working online. So I would recommend that one too. Mm-hmm. Also writing that down. Yeah. All right. Lisa, what are you reading? Um, I just ripped through two books by Ben H. Winters. The first is called The Last Policeman, and the second one is called Countdown City. They're part of a planned trilogy that focuses on life in New England in the final three months leading up to the date when a comet is expected to slam into the earth. Right. And they are fantastic um, because he goes into the economic and social and commercial implications of what happens when you actually do have like a big blinking end date on, on when, when, you know, everything as you know, it will end. For example, they talk about when newspapers stop publishing. Um, they talk about what happens with currency, w- radical laws that get passed, you know, with regard to hoarding and guns and things like that. And uh, through all of this, a lot of towns have just decided, you know, screw it. We're throwing it in on police, police work because why bother? And there's one guy who doggedly persists in being a detective and trying to find missing people and solve homicides and take care of missing children while this is all going on. <clears throat> the only thing that has me worried, I've already pre-ordered book number three because I enjoyed books one and two so much. And the only thing that has me worried is this guy also has a little sister who's involved in some fringe science group that thinks it has a way to divert the comet. And so I kind of worry that the author is not going to have the balls to pull the trigger and have the comet slam into the earth and, and, and kill everybody that we've come to know and love. And I, I really hope that happens as opposed to, and then the comet was diverted. Hooray, we're rebuilding. But um, I'm still going to read book number three because I, 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 I love the guy's tone. It's very dry. It's, it's very funny. Um, and it, it also, he does a good job of cataloging the loss, the, 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 the fact that um, it's the erosion of daily rituals and daily things you take for granted that he thinks are actually more devastating than the fact that, you know, a comet's going to plow into Indonesia and kick up a huge extinction. So I read those. Um, it reminded me of another series that I'm about to dive into. Um, there's a young adult series called uh, The Last Survivor Series by Susan Beth Pfeiffer. And the first book is it's called Life as We Know It, The Dead and the Gone, The World We Live In. And book number four, which I, I'm just about to start, is The Shade of the Moon. And basically the premise to this series is a comet slams into the moon, knocks it out of orbit, um, activates the caldera below, Yellow, below Yellowstone Park. And um, tides go crazy. You've got massive volcanic eruptions. And so there's a huge uh, fog and cloud. And it's told from the perspective of a couple siblings who are in their teens with with their mom. And and basically what happens as as literally every every form of of, um, government commerce, everything falls down. How do you fend for yourself? How do you survive? What are human relationships like? Um, the first book is is a rural book. The second book takes place in New York City with a different family and talks about the horror of being trapped in an urban environment when, you know, you basically have no way to live off the land when you live in a, a six-floor walk-up. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how this how this works out. <laughs> so so more apocalypses for, for Lisa. I like the pre... I really... You know, there's apocalyptic fiction. The thing I really liked about the last Policeman series is it's pre-apocalyptic. Right. And it, it points out pretty much that disaster is, 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 is as much, if not more, a state of mind than it is actual circumstances. Disaster is how human beings respond to circumstances and treat each other subsequently. And I think that's a really... I think that's a really rich area to mine. Speaking of disaster as a state of mind, Scott McNulty, what are you reading? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I will point out that uh, in The Uncomfortable number 155, I mentioned The Last Policeman yep. as something I was reading. Uh, so good choice, Lisa. And I will take credit for it, even though I'm sure you're reading it for some other reason. <laughs> and, and did you like The Last Policeman? Do you remember that far back? 
I I liked both of them. I've read them both, and they are very good. Uh, so check them out. I will. I second Lisa's uh, recommendation. And I just finished today uh, Blue Remembered Earth by Alistair Reynolds, who's a science fiction author who writes these kind of uh, big, sweeping space opera uh, books. Uh, and this is the first in a trilogy, although I didn't know it was the first in a trilogy when I started reading <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Um, Does it not have an ending? Is it one of those? Uh, no, it's go. <laughs> no, it, 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 it ends, but it's one of those <laughs> books that it, it, you could look at it as uh, a self-contained story. Or, if you know that their trilogy is coming, it basically just sets up the second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, it was alright with... Uh, I was okay with that. Especially since the second book is coming out soon. So, uh, I'm excited. Um, it's basically set in 2160s, uh, and, you know, the hum- humanity is uh, colonized the solar system. Uh, it still takes a long time to get places... Their uh, ecological disaster has happened on Earth, and we fixed it. And uh, the world has changed. Everyone's being watched over by this um, system of uh, checks and balances that doesn't allow you to break the law. Uh, but people like it and have given up their privacy because there's no war anymore. Uh, and it follows this this family of people who have this large kind of multi-planetary uh, uh, company that provides space um Goods, I guess. Uh, it's better than the way I'm describing it. <laughs> Space Walmart. Space goods like astronaut ice cream? Astronaut ice cream and spam. Uh, Mars tents? <laughs> astronaut spam. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, it has some very interesting uses of technology to solve the problem of if you are, you know, humanity has spread across the solar system, but uh, you, they haven't broken the speed of light, so communication lags between the different planets, and it's difficult to hold a conversation when it may take 10 hours to go back and forth between when you're talking. So they've come up with these concepts of uh, basically robot telepresence robots that you can kind of jack into and kind of give autonomy to, and then it will act as you and then update you later. Uh, and that comes on that, what you said <laughs> on what you said exactly it acts like it thinks you would act uh so it's interesting all right you totally told your mom off man oh it was so cool <laughs> like, no you're not supposed to well no actually yeah okay all those years all those years you had that pent up inside and you finally let go problem solved and jason are you reading anything of interest <laughs> why thank you for asking scott <laughs> i am um i finished so the book that i alluded to earlier that um, I consider much better than The Martian, but also was much harder to read, is Use of Weapons by Ian M. Banks. Oh, that is much better than The Martian. The third, yes, it is. The third in his Culture (laughs) series, which is set in a a shared universe. There's very little crossover between characters, although I understand there's some. Um, It's a story about um, a guy who is... He's kind of a mercenary. He's kind of a, an assassin. Um, he's deployed by the culture on various planets um, in order to tip the, uh, usually to tip the balance of a, a war one way or another. Sometimes they deploy him and expect him to lose, and that can become a problem if he's so good that he makes the wrong side win. Um, so that's his story, and and there's a particular deployment of his that we see, and that that's told um, as the book goes forward. 
and it's interleaved with chapters. Those chapters are numbered, and it's interleaved with chapters that are numbered by Roman numerals and start with a large number and go backward in time. So so you'll have 13 and then 12, or sorry, uh, XIII, and, <laughs> and, and so on. And those are going backward in his life um, and alluding to sort of... Uh, things in his past that explain something about what he's doing now and also set up some mysteries about why he uh, behaves the way he does. And he's a very interesting character and the, the, the other characters who manipulate him from the culture are also very interesting. Um, and uh, his, his story is actually kind of um, shocking and emotional. It has a great ending that I didn't see coming. And, um, and uh, use of weapons. Uh, the, there, there's that moment where the title gets dropped in the story, um, which I read it on the Kindle and it made me laugh because the se- the sentence where the phrase "use of weapons" is used has been highlighted by like everybody who read the book. It's like eighty thousand people highlighted this passage. It's <laughs> like, yes, you found the title. Good job. Ding ding I, ding ding. I can't believe that you leave those highlights on. My brain is exploding. I hate the highlights. I I do. I'm fascinated by them. Uh, and they don't bother me that much. I, I'm fascinated to see what people highlight. I love it. It's like it's like it's like getting a used you, book in a college uh, bookstore, and you're like, "What are they highlighting? What does this note mean?" I, it's kind of fun, and you can turn it off. But one time, I think I got burned, and it was it, the highlight. The fact that the thing had been highlighted so much proved to be a giant spoiler. Like it was like, "Don't miss this thing." So then I turned it off and never looked back. Yeah, he uh, felt fine. Oh no! <laughs> what is that? <laughs> he sure didn't die in seven pages. The cur- Vonnegut novel where characters get an asterisk <laughs> next to their name when they're going to die in the next 20 pages to, to, to keep you from being too disturbed and it's so disturbing when you get the asterisk you're like no they're going to die no so anyway it's use of weapons um, it is it is a meaningful phrase though because that's what this guy does his his living is the um, expertise in the deployment of weapons and uh, and uh, the cost that it has so it's it was a very well written very thoughtful kind of amazing um, book. And I would say this is a piece of literature that said, I didn't rip through it in a couple of days. It took a long time to get through it. Um, not because it was, uh, hard to read the words or anything, but it was just, it was, it was weighty and I didn't feel like I could, um, you know, I'd read a chapter and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to stop and read the next chapter tomorrow. But I, I liked it a lot. Um, and so thank you, Scott, for being one of the people recommending culture books. I've heard a lot of people say that they think this is the best one. What do you think? It's- it is very good. Uh, I like all of his, uh, well, all of his culture books. I haven't read everything. All of them are the best ones. All of them are the best. The Use of Weapons is uh, an amazing book, though. Yeah, it's good. So I recommend that. And then I am now reading um, The Gollum and the Genie, which was recommended by Scott on perhaps our last book club. And I'm liking that a lot. And it's got a, a little of the, uh, I don't know, it's got, it, it, it's reminded me of a bunch of uh, different books. It reminds me of the, um, of uh not the magicians of uh the oh what's the book with the uh the night circus yeah it reminds me a little bit of the night circus and a little bit of uh uh, jonathan strange and mr norell and uh a little bit of michael chabon kind of stuff and it's it's a lot of fun there's a golem you see and there's a genie j-i-n-n-i genie interesting j-i-n-n-i yeah tell me more so you know golem genie and uh and it is the golem and the genie. There was a debate in the last uh, book club about whether it was the genie and the golem. I, I couldn't remember. And basically, it's a 70s sitcom uh, yeah. set to a novel. So it's really great. He's a golem. She's, She's a genie. 
Well, he's made of fire and she's made of clay. So will he, will he glaze her into a pot, some sort of pottery? A pottery woman? Uh, I'm in the middle. I don't know. This is the internal tension. Anyway, I'm enjoying that a lot, too. So that's what I'm reading. If it wasn't 70 sitcom, it would be on that guy's uh, TV on Mars. Don't give away the ending. <laughs> Way to bring it back. Because all of them are there. Mm-hmm. If, if I could highlight that, I would. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that that wraps it up. We have come to the end of our book club. I want to thank my guests for um, sharing this time talking about The Martian, which will take you longer to read than this <laughs> podcast length. Maybe not as much, but a little bit. So, John Moltz, thanks for being on a real episode. We'll have to do this, uh, you know, when there's light out in the sky a little bit so that you can do it again sometime. Just barely. All right. That's good. Good promise. Thank you. Lex Friedman, great to have you back again. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for reading a book that we want to talk about. Maybe we'll do a Dave Barry. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm doing it on my own podcast. All right, good. good. <laughs> Are you going to do your dad po- your your dad cast? Uh, dad casters. Mm-hmm. Any any of my many podcasts. All right, fair <laughs> enough. You can just do, do uh, review the chapters on your daily Lex. Yeah, I guess I I already have to do that with him. Oh, chapter eighteen. Man, <laughs> let me tell you about it. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you for being here. <laughs> Oh, it was fun. Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And as always, Scott McNulty, I've saved you for last. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. (laughs) I don't want to bog you down in too much technical detail because I know you don't like that. It's true. I like technical detail uh, when it's used judiciously. Fair enough. Fair enough. Your your (laughs) opinion has been noted. I see where you're coming from. It didn't bother me, but there was a lot of it. There's no doubt. But it did, when he, in his Google talk, he was like, I really had to resist trying to show all my work. And I was like, well, you failed. <laughs> you did have to, but you did not. He did a lot more work, I guess. Yeah. A staggering amount of work. All right. Well, that is it for The Incomparable. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. We'll see you next time. 